Psalm 96. We're going to cover seven psalms tonight. Psalm 96, 97, 98, 99, 100, 101, 102, and 102 is where we're going to stop. Psalm 96. If you need a Bible, if you'll raise your hand, we'll be happy to get you one. Anybody need a Bible? Great. Psalm 96. Before we begin, though, would you join me in prayer? Let's ask God's blessing on our Bible study. Father, thank you so much for your your rich words to us. Lord, you speak so clearly, you speak so plainly, and yet you speak so powerfully. Lord, your words are so deep. Sometimes we get into the Scripture and it seems over our head. But but also, Lord, we get into the Scripture and we find solid footing and a solid foundation. And so, Lord, it's deep, but it's wide and it's strong and, and it's real. And so tonight, Lord, we pray that as we open our hearts to your word, that your spirit would be our teacher and that you would continue to lead us and guide us in the things of God. Lord, this will be our pursuit for all eternity, to to learn of you, to know of you, to know of your grace, to sing your praise. And so tonight, Lord, we ask that you do a good work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Abraham Lincoln was entertaining a White House guest one evening. The man tried to praise the president. He said, back in my home state, folks say the welfare of the nation depends on God and Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln humbly responded, well, they're half right. Later in his president, Lincoln commented, without divine assistance, I cannot succeed. With it, I cannot fail. Abraham Lincoln understood that ultimately God is on the throne that His will and that God Himself will prevail. God's reign is supreme. And this is the lesson taught tonight in our chapters. In Psalms 93, 95 through 100, these are called the royal psalms. They speak of God's reign over the earth, that God is King. You know, this morning we talked about sin and its devastating effects, the fall of man. And yet, despite man's fall, God still reigns. Can you say that with me? Despite man's fall, God still reigns. We need to believe that. It is indeed true. And that is the theme of tonight's chapters. Psalm 96 has an interesting structure. It's divided into three stanzas, each beginning with a threefold call. Verses 1 and 2 start the psalm, sing, sing, sing. Verses 7 and 8 instruct us, give, give, give. And verses 11 and 12 declare, let, let, let. You'll see it as we get in it. Psalm 96 is also similar to 1 Chronicles 16, verses 22 through 33, the psalm that David wrote when he brought the Ark of the Covenant up to the city of Jerusalem. Well, verse 1 begins, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Proclaim the good news of His salvation from day to day. Sometimes you come to church, you're a little down, you're tired, you're kind of out of it. 
And it's just easy to mouth the words and go through the motions. When that happens, remember Psalm 96. And sing, sing, sing. Dig deep. Cut loose. And just sing. God is worthy to be praised. And notice too, we sing a new song, but the lyrics are about the old story. Notice what we sing about. The psalmist says, the good news of his salvation. Sing of the good news of his salvation. Here's the goal of our praise. Don't let the old story get old. Don't dare let it happen. Sing it day by day, but sing it in fresh and new ways. Verse 3 tells us, declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among church people. No, no, no. All peoples. You know, a primary purpose of praise is to bring pleasure to God. But praise is also a tool for evangelism. Don't just praise God in church among His people. Declare His glory among all peoples. When you praise God among the folks at work and the folks in the community, when you praise God among the nations, you let them know that there is something in this sinful, fallen world still worth getting excited about. When an unbeliever walks into Calvary, let's not be timid in our praise. Let's not shy away and clam up. He needs to know, she needs to know that we're excited about our God. He says, for the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. And notice the balanced response here to God's greatness. He's to be praised, but he's also to be feared. We're to rejoice and we're to revere. We're to lift him up and we're to bow ourselves down. There's balance here. He says, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Understand the truth. Jehovah of the Hebrews and Jesus His Son is the one true God. All others are worthless idols. He says, honor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are His sanctuary. Now, give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Notice this. The limits of our worship are the limits of his worth. Give to the Lord. The glory do his name. How much is that? Well, we can never praise God enough, can we? Notice too the progression in our praise. Singing is a start. But it's not the finish. There's a progression here. Singing comes first. But then giving comes next. Hey, you start with your lips. You take a deep breath. You give it a rip. You make a joyful noise. You sing, sing, sing. But then you reach for your hip. And you pull out your wallet. And you give, give, give. Notice, you give. You bring an offering. This, too, is part of your worship and part of your praise. Hey, hey, give an offering. This is where you put some meat on the bone, man. This is where you put your money where your mouth is. Anybody can sing. But you have to be truly connected and truly committed in order to pull out that wallet and give. You back up your lyrics with some tangible proof of your allegiance when you step up and give. As a matter of fact, you hit the high notes of praise 
when you give to the Lord. He says, oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. You know what matters in true worship? Is it a beautiful voice, but the beauty of holiness? It's a life that's sold out and set apart for Jesus. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. Here's what the nations need to remember. Though sin wreaks havoc, still the Lord reigns. Before President Obama became our new president, the Lord reigned. And after he's gone, the Lord will also reign. Kings come and go. Presidents come and go. But the Lord reigns. He says, let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field be joyful and all that's in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord. Hey, catch this. Let the heavens, let the earth, let the sea, let the field, let them all rejoice before God. And why? For He is coming. For He is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with His truth. Jesus is coming back to planet earth. I hope you're ready. He came the first time to redeem our soul. He will come the next time to restore our planet. To restore it to its original perfection. Romans chapter 8 tells us that all creation groans in anticipation of the Lord's return. You know, nature today, its instability, its randomness is the result of our sin. Because of the fall, Mother Nature has gone hormonal. She suffers a perpetual PMS. The world is not what God created. But when Jesus returns, He'll right the wrongs. He'll remove the curse and He'll restore the earth to its original ideal. So, let, let, and let the fields rejoice. Give, give, and give. Sing, sing, and sing. And why this triune call? For we have a three-in-one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, Psalm 97 is another of the royal psalms. And have you noticed I'm putting the numbers up here on the screen? It's getting harder and harder to find all these numbers, you know. Now, it's getting tough. Psalm 97 is another of the royal psalms. It's divided into two parts. God is the reigning one, and then God is the righteous one. Verses 1 through 9 depict Him as the ruler over nations and over nature. It begins, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad. Let both the earth's mainland and its islands rejoice in the Lord. Clouds and darkness surround Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Notice His glory is shrouded in clouds and in darkness, but His standards are clearly seen. Righteousness and justice are His foundation. A fire goes before Him. And burns up his enemies round about. His lightnings light the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness and all the peoples 
see his glory. You know, all these royal psalms ultimately point to the second coming of Jesus when he returns to establish his throne upon the earth. Prior to his return, the Bible predicts signs in the heavens, cataclysmic events will rock our planet when the seventh bowl of judgment spoken of in Revelation is poured out. We're told that the mountains will be no more. Major catastrophic events will take place on planet earth. And in that day, Psalm 97 will be fulfilled. The mountains will melt like wax. Lightnings will go out before the Lord. Fire will burn his enemies up all around. This psalm reminds me of the new high school teacher. The summer before he started classes, he suffered a major automobile accident. And he reported to school the first day with his upper torso in a plastered cast. Of course, the students didn't realize what was underneath the teacher's shirt. On the first day, the teacher walked over to the open window to let in some air when a stiff breeze sort of blew through the room. And when it did, it, it blew his tie. His tie started flapping up in his face. It didn't phase the new teacher, though. He just kind of walked over to his desk. He, he grabbed his stapler, and he put his tie like this, and he just went, pow, 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 and just stapled his tie to his shirt. Wow. Talk about making an impression. No one was ever tempted to mess with the new guy. Any teacher who staples his tie to his chest is one tough teacher that you don't want to mess with. And this is the conclusion you should draw from Psalm 97. Don't mess around with God. Respect Him. Reverence Him. But don't trifle with Him. And, and do this, please. Put away your stupid idols. Okay? Put away your stupid idols. Stop making good things ultimate things. God is the ultimate object and affection of our lives he says in verse 7 let all be put to shame who serve carved images who boast of idols worship him all you gods you remember when the philistines captured the ark of god the symbol of god's presence and they brought it into their temple the temple of their god dagon they placed the ark there before dagon who by the way was the fish god as if the true God were going to pay homage to this Philistine idol. The next morning they walked into their temple and they found that their idol had fallen over and fallen over on its face before the ark. The next morning it fell again. This time its head and its hands were broken off. In the end, the idol of the Philistines bowed to the one true God. This is what the psalm says will happen. He says, Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, Lord, are most high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. You who love the Lord hate evil. And boy, that goes hand in hand. To love God is to hate evil. If you say you love God, and yet you still love your sin, you're a hypocrite. You're just a hypocrite. If you love God, you're going to hate those things that displease Him. Verse 10, God preserves the souls of His saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous. What a great thought that is. 
Light is sown like a seed. In other words, clarity becomes a way of life. God begins to put clearness and clarity into our lives. We start to see life and circumstances from God's perspective. Light is sown. And gladness is also sown for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of His holy name. Now when the angel Gabriel visited Mary to inform her that the Holy Spirit had overshadowed her and that she would mother the Messiah, she immediately left Nazareth for Jerusalem to visit her cousin Elizabeth. When Mary arrived at Elizabeth's house, she expressed the joy of her heart in a song. It's called Mary's Magnificat. You should read it. It's in Luke chapter 1. And when you read Mary's Magnificent, you're going to find some amazing parallels with Psalm 98. Perhaps Mary was meditating on this psalm as she journeyed from Nazareth down to Elizabeth's house. The psalm opens with the command, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. God wants fresh, passionate praise, not stale repetition. Sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. Our praise should be as current as the wonderful ways God works in our lives. His right hand and His holy arm have gained Him the victory. The Lord has made known His salvation, His righteousness. He has revealed in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His mercy and His faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Catch this. Break forth in song. Rejoice and sing praise. You know, on Sunday morning, our praise is sort of planned out. But sometimes, good times, praise just breaks out. It just happens spontaneously. There's times I'm in my office and I'm just working on my Bible study and I'm getting so caught up in the things of God and in what I'm studying and God's working in my heart. I just start singing. And I'm kind of away. We have a detached garage from our house and so nobody can hear me. Don't worry. But I just start singing and sometimes I get up and start dancing. And I, I just have, it's wonderful when praise just breaks out, just overflows. Just, just out of, it's good, planned praise is good. But, but I think it, there's a special thing that happens when praise just breaks out. Our hearts should be so overjoyed at times when we just break out in praise. He says, sing to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of a psalm, with trumpets and the sound of a horn, shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. Again, these are the royal psalms. Verse 7, let the sea roar in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, for He is coming to judge the earth. Notice the psalmist's figurative language, rivers clapping and hills rejoicing. Again, the psalms are poetry. And as poetry, they employ poetic devices, one of which is the personification of nature. Rivers, of course, don't have literal hands to clap. But the idea is that the coming of the Lord will be welcomed by all nature. It will, be, it will relieve the agony and the angst 
that exists in nature today because of the fall. Well, Psalm 98 ends with a description of the king's judgment. With righteousness, he shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. Now, Psalm 99 begins with a reminder of why this too is another of the royal psalms. Notice how it begins. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. In 17th century England, a religious movement sprung up known as the Quakers. Ever heard of the Quakers? Heard of Quaker Oats? The name came from the practice of the Quakers physically trembling and shaking under the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's why they were called Quakers. We all should quake our fear before the Lord. We all should tremble when we understand His majesty and His awesomeness and His power. We too should, should shake. When the Lord is seen, when He is revealed, He shakes things up. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. And God is He who dwells between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. Notice God's throne is in heaven between the cherubim or the archangels. This is why the Ark of the Covenant had the two angels affixed to the mercy seat. It was a replica of God's throne in heaven. Here he's saying, the throne of God is sure, so let the earth be moved. You know, so often we get it backwards. We, we think that the things around us are the, the tangible, the immovable objects. And we think of spiritual things as just sort of fleeting and faint and if ethereal and, and, and you know, uh, untangible. Not true. The real things, the true things are God's throne in heaven, His reign over the earth. What you're looking at tonight, this is what's going to pass away. This is what's here today and gone tomorrow. He says the throne of God is sure. Let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion and He is high above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. In the Old Testament Jews, they revered God so highly that tragically, they lost His name. Did you know about this? Out of respect for God's holiness, the Jews refused to write down God's full name. And they would write only the consonants, the four consonants, Y-H-W-H. It was called the Tetragrammaton. The problem, though, is that over time, they forgot the vowels that filled in between the consonants. Later Jews added vial, the vowels for another name of God, Adonai. They added that to the Tetragrammaton. Adonai means Lord. And they came up with the word Yahweh, or the anglicized form, Jehovah. But, but we don't know if that's really, those were the right vowels. All that was left was the consonants. And so the Jews, in trying to revere God's name, lost God's name was a mistake made. It's sad the Jews packed away the name rather than praising the name. You see, they misunderstood how you reverence someone. When you revere God, you sing His praise. You don't grow silent and clam up. That's not how you revere someone. You, you talk about Him. You rejoice in Him. You sing about Him. 
We're told in verse 3, let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. You praise Him. That's how you revere Him. We're told the king's strength also loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. I love this. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His footstool, for He is holy. You know, the Jews understood that the temple, this great glorious temple there in Jerusalem, it was just God's footstool. I mean, God's presence dwelt in the temple, but the Jews were under no illusion. They didn't think that the temple confined God or that God was contained in the temple. I mean, God, our God, He fills the heavens. He is in no way limited to a 90-foot by 30-foot, 2,700-square-foot ranch on Mount of Moriah. No way. The temple was merely his footstool. It was just the place where he rested his feet and where the people could come before him and bow at his feet and worship him. He says, Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called upon his name They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. Here he gives three examples of praying men. And it's interesting, his choices. Moses and Aaron and Samuel. In fact, you should go back in Scripture, and you should study their prayers. He spoke to them in the cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies in the ordinance he gave them. You answered them, O Lord our God. You were to them God who forgives though you took vengeance on their deeds. And I love this name for God. The God who forgives. That should quickly rise to be one of your favorite names for God. If you're a sinner like me. You know, here the Lord is known for His graciousness and His forgiveness. But notice though, God forgives sin, but He doesn't eliminate sin's consequences. For notice again verse 8, He says, He was to them God who forgives, though you took vengeance on their deeds. Notice, He forgave their soul, but He judged their deeds. Notice that. It's been said, God will forgive your sins, but your body won't. Think about that. You know, vile and destructive habits, they take their toll on our bodies. Some of us are suffering because of past sins and past transgressions. Even forgiven sin still has its fallout. It still brings with it a certain judgment. Out on a western ranch, a father lived with a wild and rambunctious young son. And every time this boy got into trouble, the dad would drive a nail in the hitching post in front of the house. And over the years, the wooden post, it filled up with nails Eventually, the son was charged with a crime, and he was thrown into prison. And from his jail cell, this young man wondered if his dad would ever forgive him. After his release, though, he came home. And the first thing his father did was he took out all of those nails from that nail-covered post. One by one, his dad pulled out the nails. And the boy cried. He cried like a baby at his father's vivid example of forgiveness. But when the last nail was removed, the dad asked his son to look closely at the post. Yes, the nails were gone, but now it was covered with scars. And the same is true of sin. Yes, God forgives, 
fully and freely. He is the God who forgives, but sin still leaves scars, some of which will never be removed until we get to heaven. Verse 9 wraps up Psalm 99. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. He is in a class all by Himself. Psalm 100 is entitled, A Psalm of Thanksgiving. And here is sure evidence of a Christian life. The attitude of gratitude. Do you have it? If you've truly tasted of God's goodness and grace, there will be a gladness, not a grimness. You'll be thankful, and you won't be timid about expressing your thanks. Psalm 100 springs from a thankful heart. He says, make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, Yahweh, He is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. There is no such thing as a self-made man or a self-made woman. You know, there are only two types of people. Thankful people who give God the credit or arrogant people who steal the credit from God. There is no such thing as a self-made man. There's an old movie, I don't know if you've seen it, it's called Shenandoah. Jimmy Stewart, he plays a Virginia farmer who sits down with his family around the family dinner table. And Jimmy Stewart, he prays this very graceless grace. And though most people would never be crude enough to pray this prayer out loud, I think it's close to what some people think. This is how it goes, he prays. Lord, we cleared this land, we plowed it, sowed it, and harvested it, and we cooked the harvest. It wouldn't be here, we wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We worked dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel, but we thank you just the same anyway, Lord, for this food we're about to eat. Amen. That's the attitude of a lot of folks, isn't it? Oh, they'll say thanks on the outside, but inside they feel that the credit really belongs to them. Well, the psalmist here, he takes the opposite attitude. Any good he's done, anything noble he's become, it's the product of God's grace, God's mercy. Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10, By the grace of God I am what I am. The writer of Psalm 100 would agree. And then he adds, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Of course, sheep are notoriously dumb. This is why they need a shepherd to lead them. The problem with sheep is that they tend to wander off and the shepherd has to track them down and bring them home. Notice, we are the sheep of his pasture. God is pleased when we hang out and when we graze in his pasture. And God has a pasture. The world has a pasture, Satan has a pasture, but God has his pasture and he wants us grazing in his pasture, in the word, in prayer, in fellowship, in church, in service. This is his pasture. It's when we wander off from God's pasture, this is when we get into trouble. Verses 4 and 5 encourage us, enter into his gates with thanksgiving. And into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name.
For the Lord is good, His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endures to all generations. Notice Psalm 100 begins all lands and ends with all generations. In other words, people of all ages and in all places need to give God praise. Give Him thanks. A pastor fresh out of seminary was preaching his inaugural sermon when suddenly his mind went blank. Happens more than you think. The seminary had taught their students that when this ever happened, they should just repeat the previous point and it would jar their minds and it would get them back on track. And so when the man's mind went blank, he shouted, Behold, I come quickly, repeating the scripture that he had just read. Well, it didn't work. Still, his mind was blank, so he tried it again. Behold, I come quickly. Again, nothing shook loose, you know, and nothing got going. And so this time he said it with such force. Behold, I come quickly. That, that he leaned in too far and the pulpit just fell over and toppled over and he fell out into the congregation, into the lap of a little old lady sitting on the very front row. The pastor was so embarrassed, so apologetic. He said, oh ma'am, I'm so sorry. And that's when the lady responded, don't worry, Sonny, it wasn't your fault. I should have gotten out of the way. You warned me three times you were coming. The moral of the story is this. Always take heed to a warning. Warnings are important. And this is what David does in Psalm 101. David wanted to bring the ark of God up to Jerusalem. Remember, the ark was God's sacred seat. It was His throne on the earth. And David wanted it to be center stage in the life of the nation. This is why he wanted to bring it to Jerusalem. The problem, though, is that David went about bringing up the ark the wrong way. He put it on an ox-drawn cart. God had built the ark with little eyelets on the four corners so that poles could be inserted through the eyelets and it could be carried by men. It was a protective design. You see, when David's cart that was holding the ark hit a bump, the ark started to slide off, and a man named Uzzah, he stuck out his hand to steady the ark, but as soon as he did, boom, he was struck down dead. Unholy hands were never allowed to touch the holy ark. And it was an extreme lesson for Uzzah, but it was also an extreme lesson for David. And David took this warning to heart that you don't trifle with the things of God, that God is holy and He should be approached in holy ways. And David learned two truths from this tragedy. First, he learned that God anoints men, not machines. You see, His presence was to be carried in the hearts of men, not carted on the latest technology. This is still true. We don't cart God around. God works through us. God works through men. He works through women. We don't cart Him around in technology. E.M. Bounds once said, Man is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. This is still true. And the second lesson that David learned is that a good deed can be done in a wrong way. You know, it's not enough to simply serve God, there is a way that God wants to be served. 
David's negligence had cost a man his life. In Psalm 101 is David's commitment to never let a similar catastrophe happen again. Verse 1. I will sing of mercy and justice to you, O Lord. I will sing praises. I will behave wisely in a perfect way. O when will you come to me? You know, after the accident, David's first instinct was to just forget the whole idea of handling the ark. He took it aside and he put it in the house of Obed-Edom. But, but after great prayer and meditation, God revealed to him his mistake. And now he thanks God and he vows to walk wisely and to adopt not just mo- good motives, but to adopt the methods as well that are pleasing to God. You know, Proverbs 9 verse 10 declares the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this is so true. David had been glib with God and it had gotten him in trouble. Now he fears the Lord. He gets serious. He continues, I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. And notice where David, he understands intuitively where his commitment to God should begin. At home. I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. The family is the hothouse of human relationships. Life makes up its mind at home. Does your faith in God make you a better husband, a better wife, a better son, a better daughter? David says, I'm going to live for God and I'm going to start at home. Howard Hendricks used to say, if your Christianity doesn't work at home, don't export it. In verse 3, David vows, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. Boy, how relevant is that to us today. On the internet, the cable television, the magazine rack, have you vowed to put nothing wicked before your eyes? Guys, here is where you want to fight the war against lust. Because once that wickedness creeps into your heart, it's often too late. That's why you want to fight the battle before your eyes. Out here, not in here, out here. You want to fight it out here. You want to vow that you're not going to allow your eyes to wander and look at these things. If it doesn't get through the eyes, it can't penetrate into the heart. And notice the Hebrew word here translated wicked. It it literally means worthless. Not just wicked, but worthless. You know, some material is not evil per se. It's just worthless. It's just a trivial pursuit. It's a distraction. It's a waste of your time. Guys, seconds and minutes and hours are gifts from God. We need to be good stewards of our time. So steer clear of both wicked stuff and worthless stuff. David says, I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. My eyes shall be on the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He who works deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. Notice David is concerned about the people around him. He's going to avoid the unfaithful and the gossip and the proud and the deceitful. And he's going to hang out with the faithful people. 
this is good, good advice. He says, early I will destroy all the wicked of the land that I may cut off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. And as king, this was his responsibility to rid the land of the evildoers. title a prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed and pours out his complaint before the lord could be any one of us couldn't it he says hear my prayer O lord and let my cry come to you do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble incline your ear to me in the day that i call answer me speedily for my days are consumed like smoke and my bones are burned like a hearth. My heart is stricken and withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread. Because of the sound of my groaning, my bones cling to my skin. I am like a pelican of the wilderness. I am like an owl of the desert. I lie awake and am like a sparrow alone on the housetop. In other words, I'm out of my element. You know, pelicans don't usually show up in the wilderness. They're usually seen along the seashore. Find a pelican in the wilderness and you know that a violent storm has blown him off course inland. At the writing of this psalm, this may have been what had happened to Israel. Some believe that this psalm was written by Daniel while he was living in Babylon in exile. After the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, after the burning of the temple, the Jews were deported to Babylon, and now Daniel is out of his element. He's away from his land. He's away from his temple. He's been blown far off course by a violent storm. Verse 8, My enemies reproach me all day long. Those who deride me swear an oath against me. For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of your indignation and your wrath, for you have lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a shadow that lengthens, and I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, shall endure forever, and the remembrance of your name to all generations. You will arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time has come. Did you know that God has set times for Israel? Daniel chapter 9 predicted the exact day, the set time that Jesus would present himself to the nation. On April the 6th, 32 AD, Messiah rode his donkey down the Mount of Olives to the cheers of the crowd, just as Daniel had predicted to the exact day, 173,880 days after the giving of the commandment by Artaxerxes, Jesus presented himself to the nation in fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. It was a set time that God had for the people of Israel. Daniel said that afterwards the Messiah would be cut off or that he would die a violent death. And then Daniel predicted a final seven-year period of history that will bring about the culmination of God's plans and his salvation for Israel. 
In Romans chapter 11, verse 25, God cuts Israel off from the vine in order to graft in the Gentiles. But when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, in other words, when the last Gentile gets saved, God will graft Israel into that vine again. In other words, His timetable for Israel will start up once more. Again, God still has set times for Israel. Here are the first 11 verses of Psalm 102. They describe the psalmist's predicament. He's cast out of the land. He's abandoned. He's punished. He has tasted God's judgment followed. And in 70 AD, Rome Jerusalem. Rome Jerusalem. Rome scared the Jews. Gentiles. The Gentiles. Where they live. Where they live. For two Gentiles. Have lived. Where they house. Among the AD, Rome sacked Jerusalem. Rome scattered the Jews among the Gentiles. Where they have lived for the last 2,000 years. Until the 20th century. Until our lifetime. For in our lifetime. God has brought back the Jews to their land. He has reestablished His people Israel. Israel is a nation again. And verse 13 predicts the set time will come. I believe God's prophetic time clock restarted with the rebirth of the nation Israel. Notice verse 14 continues. For your servants take pleasure in her stones and show favor.